What's the latest in romance? Each established writer has clearly established a constituency, and it's fun to follow that. Robert Gottlieb will be here to talk about this season's Bounty of Love Stories. How do you follow up a runaway bestseller of a debut? One thing that I wanted to try to do was to write sort of on a a little bit bigger of a canvas. Celeste Ang will join us to talk about her new novel, Little Fires Everywhere. Alexander Alter will tell us about the latest goings-on in the literary world. And we'll talk about what we and the wider world are reading. This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. Robert Gottlieb joins us now. He is the author most recently of a memoir, Avid Reader. He has also served as the editor-in-chief of Knopf, of Simon & Schuster, and of The New Yorker. Bob, thanks for being here. Thank you. And this week, you wrote a roundup of the season's romance novels, which is a bit of a change from your last review for us, which was of a Tuscanini bio. Have you always been a fan of romance? Well, to the extent that I've indulged myself in dipping into it, yeah, I enjoy it. Because on the one hand, it does its job Mm -hmm. often quite well. And on the other hand, it's preposterous. Nothing is at stake. Right. So you can just enjoy what you can enjoy and then forget it. It's interesting. I mean, is there any other kind of genre where really nothing is at stake? Well, you could say that not much is at stake in a thriller. Right except your heartbeat. That is not at stake in romance novels. What's at stake is obviously people who read such books in any genre are getting something from it that they either need or really want. Whether it's escape or excitation, I don't know. I read such things, whether whether it's romance or thrillers or detective stories. I read them because I read. Put it in front of me and I'll read it. And I get curious as a not just as a publisher, but as mm-hmm. a lifetime here, I'm curious. Suddenly, a name appears attached to 14 romance novels. Like about 10 years ago, eight years ago, there were a number of people who were uh, peaking, including Nora Roberts' Queen of the Romance Novel. Mm-hmm. So I remember going to, uh, I guess it was Barnes and Noble at that time, and buying five or six of them, different writers, to read and compare. And indeed, as I've always really suspected and known, they differ greatly, not just in quality, but what they do. And you see that the people who read them are not just buying romance novels. Mm -hmm. They're buying Nora Roberts, or they're buying Debbie McComber. They're very, very different. So Each established writer has clearly established a constituency. Right. And it's fun to follow that. All right. I want to ask a lot of questions specifically about those two authors and other authors and the books themselves. But just to go back to your initial reading of romance as a publisher, you worked in publishing for a long time. Did you ever publish romance? No. No. My only connection to it, which was quite hilarious, was when I was— in my later youth at Simon & Schuster, Simon & Schuster was distributing the Harlequin romance novels from Canada, Mm -hmm. which were incredibly popular. Millions and millions were being sold. No one I knew, including myself, had ever even opened one, let alone read it. So I confiscated, I got hold of a Harlequin romance rack, one of those circular things that turns around mm-hmm. in a books in a drugstore yeah. spins around, filled with Harlequin romances, because I wanted to know what they were. It had a purple heart at the top. It said Harlequin. So I started reading them, and they were indeed 
pretty pathetic, mm-hmm. but they differed. They were extremely unsophisticated. My great friend and colleague at that time, Nina Bourne, she read a few of them, uh, all set in exotic places. Mm-hmm. And she was very funny, and she had a good time. But she basically said, you know, these are all novels set in exotic Cairo and Singapore, written by old ladies who have never got as far as Toronto. And that's really how they read. Yeah. But that didn't mean that they didn't supply something and meet a need. What do you think makes for a successful romance novel? What well, makes one work? you have to accept that there's a pull mm-hmm. between the hero and the heroine. The basic story, the basic plot, the basic donee is here are two people who are meant for each other, which you know from the first page, but something is keeping them apart. What is it? Mm -hmm. So the writer has to figure that out book by book. Well, one is a millionaire and the other one is a haggard wretch. It doesn't matter. They don't speak the same language. They hate each other on sight. Their Mm -hmm. parents loathe. It doesn't matter. There's an obstacle. And the story is, how do you get around it or overcome it or avoid it or ignore it? So that's the romance novel. And the romance comes into the fact that it always happens. It works out. The romance is fulfilled. Otherwise, people who use them as fantasy or as escape or projections of whatever needs they have are going to turn against them and not go back to that writer. So, so there's no subgenre of like unhappily ever after. No, never. There's happens. no unhappy. Only in life is there unhappily ever <laughs> right. after. Right, we have life for that, but you do have subgenres within Absolutely. romance, and you say that there are kind of two major ones. First one being the Regency. What does that mean? Well, the Regency was the period in British royal history when King George the Third went mad and couldn't reign was not supplanted, but his role was taken by his son, who was known as the Prince Regent, who then eventually became George IV. These novels are essentially set in that period, which is late 18th, early 19th century. Why that period? Because it's full of festoons and highwaymen and royalty. And that's, he built Brighton, the, the fabulous city of pleasure. Mm-hmm. It, it appealed. And the woman who made it happen was a brilliant writer named Georgette Heyer, or Heyer. I don't, I've read books about her, but I still don't know how she's pronounced. And she wrote a series of maybe 25 Regency romances. And they're wonderful. All my literary friends, or many of my literary friends and authors in England read her. Mm-hmm. They didn't read any other because she was so witty, because she was in such control of the material, because you absolutely believed in the detail because it was correct. She had done her homework. And she was funny. She, that The aspect of Jane Austen, in mm-hmm. which all of this kind of book comes, she had. She was not Jane Austen because no one else ever was or will be. But she had enough so that you were felt that when there was witty dialogue going on, it was witty, and that these people had charm and enjoyed each other and loved talking, and their minds met. Mm-hmm. It was a question of a meeting of minds. The, they, these people, the hero and heroine, would end up sharing the same humor, the same sense of reality, right. and so they were drawn together not by their manly stature and their bosomy looks, although that helped, 
but by the way they could interact with each other intellectually. And she mastered it. And by the way, the moment George Heyer strayed from the Regency, which she liked to do, and wrote historicals about the ancient Normans or mm-hmm. contemporary mysteries, they were terrible. It's amazing that, like, just to go even outside that one specific period of British history would be verboten or, or well, difficult. Well, it wasn't that it was verboten or difficult. She just couldn't do it. That's not where her heart was. Yeah. So she was stretching and trying and faking, whereas in these, her heart was in it. And any one of those Regency romances is fun to read. And still is. They're all still in print. And the people who are doing this kind of romance, who are writing Regency romances today, are they also sticking to that historical period? Absolutely. And are they authors all British or are there American authors who write uh, Regency? They're both now. They stick in the period. It leaks over the edges. Mm-hmm. Once in a while, you're in front of the region. Sometimes you're a little later. But essentially, even I know one of these books, which I reviewed, I can't even remember which one. It goes out of the period, but it's that's chronologically. Mm-hmm. But the way it proceeds and the way it talks is pure Regency. It's right. a Regency romance set some other time. Yeah. And those books were f- full of fun. And they did allow sex in up to a point. Mm -hmm. The most successful, maybe the most successful who ever lived was Barbara Cartland, who wrote 600 or 700 books, which are still being issued 17 years after her death. I mean, how is that possible, really? I mean, you you mentioned in your review that there are like 199 that had yet to be published. She stored them up. Wow. Well, she was industrious. And I don't think she took, I think she took two or three weeks to write a book, if that. Or maybe she dictated them at full speed. Or maybe there were people at her publishers who helped along. Mm-hmm. You know. But a Barbara Cartland novel was a Barbara Cartland novel. You knew what you were getting, if it's what you wanted. They were very much like the Harlequin books. Mm-hmm. They were quite exotic and innocent. All the same, no sex reared its ugly head, really, in a Barbara Cartland book. But she's one of the most successful writers who ever lived. So you divide things into Regency romances and then more contemporary contemporary romance. But within that, I imagine there are many different kinds of books. Very, very different kinds of books. And they range from those that verge on, if not violent, something close to it, thriller-type plots. Right. I mean, one of them here, this Sheris Hodges's Deadly Rumors, which you reviewed, from the sound of it, it feels like a thriller. It is a thriller, but its basic appeal isn't as a thriller. It's the relationship between the hero and the heroine. And also, as I say, it happens to be, these happen to be black Americans, and there are some references to that. But mm-hmm. that doesn't matter really, nor does the thriller aspect. It's really about how this guy and this woman find their way back to each other, which sexually they're enthralled to each other, but they resist. He wants to protect her. She doesn't want to be protected. She's on her own. He doesn't want, et cetera, et cetera. But you know what? It all turns out for the best. Now, cozies are for people who do not want to be agitated or excited. They want everything to be absolutely lovely. Mm -hmm. So if there is any sex, it's very, very muted. They can have grandmothers. One of them has a grandmother plot. They take place in sweetly pretty places and have sweetly pretty covers. And as I think I wrote, one of them 
ends with the author's recipe for Russian tea cookies. Right. See, that's one thing. We have those in the detective novel, too. Mm -hmm. Someone like Louise Penny. Those are cozy. And in fact, in the bookstores, they literally now have a description. It'll say cozies. What's the origin of that term? I think the origin is probably in those Agatha Christie novels that feature Miss Marple. It's the difference between Hercule Poiret and, and, and Miss Marple. That's right, because Miss Marple is an elderly lady who knits or whatever, and but and in a village, you know, she probably has a cat who can remember. She's very sharp-minded mm-hmm. and smart, but nevertheless, if you want to get away from your noisy neighborhood and the clatter of modern life, you find yourself in an English village where everybody is adorable until they kill each other. How does romance overall, and and I'm sure there's a range within this, but how has it grappled with changing women's roles in society? This is the most interesting thing that's happened because whereas Georgette Heyer's Regency heroines had a lot of gumption, Mm -hmm. you know, they would dress up as men to escape a marriage they didn't want and ride off into the night and stumble upon a guy who turns out to be a disguised duke. It didn't matter, really. (laughs) But they took charge. Yeah. You know, they weren't patsies. But a lot of heroines of romance novels that followed were very passive. They were waiting for Mr. Wright. Mm -hmm. And Mr. Wright always came along because that was his job. He wasn't in the book if he wasn't going to get there. Now... And I'm, I can't tell you whether it was 10 years ago or 15 years ago or 20 years ago, but more and more women are being shown in these books as empowered, self-empowered. Mm-hmm. They have jobs. They're strong. They're not just waiting for Mr. Wright. They're not even actively seeking Mr. Wright. They're, he just turns up and there are the usual problems, whatever they may be. And they find each other as equals, which in some cases the man has to learn about. Mm -hmm. So it's the taming of the boss in a way. Right. With the books that you reviewed in this roundup, and I'm just going to go through not all of the titles, but some of the titles quickly here so people know what we're talking about. We've got Cheris Hodges's Deadly Rumors, we mentioned earlier. Eloisa James's Wild in Love. Now, Eloisa James is a fascinating case. Because she's highly literate. Mm -hmm. She's a professor of... That's right. She's a tenured professor of English literature at Fordham Mm -hmm. and has written very serious books, I believe, on the metaphysical poets or on whatever. She's the daughter of the famous poet Robert Bly, and she knows it. She writes very well, and she enjoys doing this. Obviously, she has fun with it. She's not ashamed of it. Mm -hmm. She also wrote a book about she and her Italian husband, who I believe is a count... Mm-hmm. and a real one, but also a professor of literature. They spent a year with their kids in Paris together. It's that story. Right. But that's a nonfiction memoir, which she does very handily. So she is not a little old lady mm-hmm. who never got as far as Toronto. She's a Fordham professor of English literature. So I would recommend that. Okay, well, maybe that'll end up answering the question. The, the ultimate question here is going to be, which ones do you really recommend? But I'll go through the rest. There's Joanna Shoup, A Daring Arrangement, which is part of the 400 series. Caridad Pinero's One Summer Night. Catherine Anderson's The Christmas Room, which is in hardcover. 
Julia Quinn's The Duke and I, and Tessa Dare's The Duchess Deal. Tessa Dare is also a major best-selling author. They all are almost. Julia Quinn is. I note, please, how many dukes and duchesses turn up because yes. dukes and duchesses are crucial to the Regency romance. Now, once in a while, you get a mere marquis, but who cares about him? He isn't. Oh, interesting. Duke. <laughs> Whereas in the contemporary ones, mm-hmm. the equivalent of the duke is the billionaire. Right, the investment banker or the Silicon Valley. Go entrepreneur. to E.L. James and her. Shades of Grey trilogy. There you have the story again, the billionaire, unhappy, crazed, but wonderful person, and the young, innocent girl who rescues him from his emotional and psychic isolation. All right, final question. What to you is the most welcome thing that you've seen And when you look at romance novels today versus, you know, the ones from, say, 25 years ago? Well, I would say the, the healthiest thing— mm-hmm is this business of women becoming real people and Mm -hmm. not passive, cut-out dolls. I do think that's very healthy and and valuable. The stories are the stories. Look, you buy it, you don't buy it. Mm -hmm. And you have various degrees of credulity, depending on who you are. What's to me as a publisher so interesting and Mm -hmm. heartening is that readers know. They identify the writer or subgenre they're going to be comfortable in. The people who are wanting violence, they're not going to be reading the cozies. Mm-hmm. They know whether it's the covers or they experiment. Or maybe all these people have websites. I don't know because I don't do that. But what happens now, as opposed to when we were growing up, is that because of the media, everyone knows that the new Tessa Dare or Julia Quinn or Eloisa James is out. Mm -hmm. So you have immediate sales. It used to take time. How did you know when you wanted to do a bookstore? People didn't do big ads for these things. Or word got around. But now a genre book can be available and within two days be high on the appropriate bestseller list. And then that is satisfied. It doesn't grow from there. Mm -hmm. So those books come and go rapidly, but then they're read rapidly, too. So access to them is easy, and people, readers, have an easy way of knowing whether they want Russian tea cookies or whips and manacles. They don't get confused. There's a reader for everything. Right. All right, Bob, thank you so much. You're so welcome. Bob Gottlieb is the author, most recently, of a memoir, avid reader and a biographer and a writer of many books. This week, he reviews the season's romance novels in our cover review, In the Mood for Love. Celeste Ng joins us now. Her new novel is called Little Fires Everywhere. Celeste, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Tell us a little bit about the novel, but let's start with the title, which comes from a quote from the book. Yeah, the title, Little Fires Everywhere, is both metaphorical and uh, literal. There are quite a number of um, metaphorical fires burning uh, in this neighborhood and in between these two families that sort of get entangled with each other. But the book actually opens with a literal house fire. Um, The house of the Richardsons, one of the main families in the book, is burning to the ground, and they find out soon that the youngest child, Izzy, has set the fire. So 
It's interesting because your first book, Everything I Never Told You, your debut, began with a dead girl and you were sort of trying to figure out, reconstruct what happened. This new novel begins with a fire. And you're saying that we know who set the fire? Yes. I didn't realize that I had done that until, you know, people started reading the second book and and they pointed out, you know, you like to give away the endings of your book right at the beginning. But I guess this really speaks to my impulse to try and get the reader to focus not on what is going to happen, but how did this happen? Mm -hmm. How did these people get into this state? You know, what were all of the the sort of um, interpersonal relationships that led up to this point? What is it about that process that interests you as a writer? Well, I'm frankly just always trying to write towards something that I don't understand. That's usually where a story starts for me. I go, how could this have happened? Or how could this person do this thing? And in writing out a story and in trying to get into their mindset and their background, that's sort of how I um, I create the story. And um, that's frankly just always what draws me into any piece of writing is sort of the human element of it. And um so that's that's why I think I always want the reader to be focusing on the like you know not a who done it but like how this happened. But it's interesting because some writers who construct a novel that is in some way a thriller, and I think this book is in some ways a kind of thriller or a not who done it as you said, but a how did this happen? And sometimes the authors say, "Well, I actually didn't know how it was going to end. It sort of it unspooled itself. So you know how it's going to end, but do you know how it is that they got there, or is that a process?" that you discover as you're writing? Before I can start writing, I always have to have a general idea of where I think the book is going. I'm not mm-hmm. always right, but I always sort of need to have a destination to kind of drive towards, in other words. And the surprises for me come along the way in sort of figuring out exactly why these people did all the things that they did. So I guess it's a little bit like having... Um, Having a a road trip plan where you have a destination, but you don't have a specific itinerary, you know you're going in that direction, but you leave yourself some space to explore along the way. So speaking of destination, both of the books are set in Shaker Heights, and you grew up in part in Shaker Heights. Did you grow up thinking, like, I'm going to write about this place one day? Well, I didn't. Uh, The first book is set in in sort of a fictionalized town, but I did draw on Shaker Heights to kind of imagine what a small Ohio town might be like. When I was growing up in Shaker Heights, I just, I loved it, um, and I still do love it. I'm very fond of it, and I have a lot of nostalgia for it. And it was only sort of when I moved away, and I learned that a lot of the things I had grown up with were actually not as common or as typical as I thought they'd been. That was when the, the possibilities for fiction kind of came alive for me. What was it that wasn't as common as you thought? Well, I mean, both sort of a small sort of silly surface things and also sort of larger philosophical things. So the the silly smaller things are the things like, um, I talk about some of them in the book, like on garbage day, you don't put your garbage cans on the curb because that makes the street look messy. And the city instead has little garbage trucks that pick up the garbage in the back of your house and take it out. So they go down every person's driveway. Or things like um, that two family houses have to be sort of disguised as one family house. They can only have one front door and one front door light. Um, A lot of sort of little surface things like that I didn't realize weren't typical Mm -hmm. uh, until I moved away. But then there are also larger things like um, the community is very focused on race, and they try to make that really a topic of conversation, that there's a race relations group at the high school fifth and sixth graders go through sort of a race awareness training, and then often when they get to high school, they become part of the race relations group and come back and complete the cycle. And I didn't realize that that wasn't something that every community did. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't realize that Shaker Heights was sort of so 
based on principles and idealism and that it really was such an idealism-driven town. And I didn't realize that other communities didn't have that sort of sense of themselves as being exemplars. A lot of it, it sounds like, too, the novel is about, you know, deceptive appearances, that things aren't always the way they seem, both, you know, with that, the garbage being hidden and the two family houses being disguised at one. And it sounds like maybe that applies as well to race relations in the town. That, yes, that, absolutely. Um, I think there's a real difference between sort of the the surface of things and then sort of what the true state of things is. For example, Lexi, the oldest daughter in the uh, Richardson family, is dating uh, a black student at her school, um, one of her black classmates, and she says, oh, we, you know, uh, we don't see race. I don't see race. But he's a little bit more aware of race than she right. He's sort of aware of the ways in which he's going to be seen differently dating a, a white girl than she will be seen de- dating a black boy. And um, that's sort of a theme throughout, that everyone in here, I think there's a difference between the surface of who they appear to be and then who they actually are inside, um, all the way down to the artwork that Mia, the sort of mother who comes in from out of town, creates. And right, and she also, she says, no one sees race here, right? So like, not not just her, but... In, right, right. In a, we, nobody sees race here, yeah. right? Exactly, which... You know, I've, I don't think has ever been true for anyone who says it. And, you know, even if it is true, it's a problematic sort of stance to take. It's interesting, though, you set this book in the past, the, the not too distant past in the late 90s. And your first book was set in 1977. Why those periods? Well, the first book, uh, Everything I Never Told You, the 70s seemed like a time that really sort of highlighted all of the things that I realized that this family was wrestling with, um, especially with regard to women's roles and with regard to race. Um, it was sort of before a time that um, women becoming doctors would, you know, w- wouldn't be something that would make you turn your head. In this book, I set it in the 90s first just on a whim because that was the era that I knew Shaker Heights in. That was the era in which Mm -hmm. I grew up in Shaker Heights. And so it was a a world and a time that I knew very intimately. But it did also work out really well because it allowed the characters first to have a little bit of secrecy. Um, It was Mm -hmm. in the pre-cell phone era, in the pre-internet era, or, you know, internet was just barely beginning. You had to dial up and wait for the modem to connect and all that stuff. And in an era where it would have been a little bit easier to conceal things about yourself or about your past, and it was harder for other people to find you. Um, that was something that I, I really needed the characters to have that sort of space to to hide in. But what ended up happening was that as I started to write, I realized that that's 20 years ago, and that seems sort of far away, but not as far away as it ought to be, that um, a lot mm-hmm. of the discussions about race that the characters are having, we're still having now, frankly. Right. It's interesting. Laura Lippman was talking about her next novel, Sunburn, which isn't out yet. I heard her talking about it today, and she said it in 1995. And the reason she gave was that that was the last year that you could just kind of disappear. You know, originally, when this first came up, it was like, do you set it pre-cell phone or post-cell phone? And then it became pre-smartphone or post-smartphone and pre-internet and post-internet. And I'm, it, it's interesting that that's become a kind of dividing point because it affects storytelling so much. It does. And I've, I'm seeing some books start to come out in stories where they really sort of make good use of text messaging or, you know, following somebody's phone on GPS. 
And I feel like that opens up new possibilities, but it also definitely closes off some certain possibilities. Um, in the novel, there are times when a character needs to know something, and they really have to write to the, you know, the public records office mm-hmm. and try and get that information. They have to wait for this information to come back to them. And now, you know, whether you put your information in or not, there are websites that kind of aggregate all kinds of public data and will list all the addresses you have ever, ever lived at. And Everyone who's ever lived there with you and all of your family members, you know, um, it's, it's like you said, it's harder to disappear. You would have to work a lot harder at it now, I think, than, than before 1995. And it's interesting, too, as you said, it was easier to keep secrets. And both of these novels involve, to a certain extent, the secret lives of teenagers. And I, it's interesting how teenage girls in particular seem well-suited to, I don't know, to, to novels of intrigue. I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. <laughs> well, I, I think that teenagers um, are in that sort of weird liminal space where they're not children. So they, they do have secrets that they want to keep, but they're not adults. And so they don't really know how to keep those secrets exactly. Or they, you know, people, they, the adults in their lives still think that they deserve to know what's going on in their children's lives. And so I feel like teenagers naturally kind of want to keep some some of their secrets to themselves as they sort of realize their own agency. And yet, of course, they're not really granted the the right to hold all of those secrets. They're you know they still live with their parents most of the time. Um, they're still dependent, and they don't get to make a lot of their own decisions. And so I feel like that's sort of a natural period in which you you learn about secrets. You learn to keep important secrets, right? Um, that's sort of how I remember a lot of my teenage years being is sort of like, which secrets was I keeping for which friends and vice versa? Who could you trust? Who couldn't you trust? Mm -hmm. Your first novel, Everything I Never Told You, you had an amazing, highly unusual experience for a debut author in that it became a mega bestseller. I think Amazon for the first time named it the best book of the year and it was your book. What was that like? Really surreal, honestly. Um, I mean, it's sort of the beyond the wild fantasies that, you know, any beginning writer could come up with. I, I feel just really lucky that the book found such a receptive audience because I know that it's it's hard to publish a novel. It's hard to be a debut author. And it, it put a little pressure on me this time to, to try and make sure that I didn't disappoint all of those readers who had loved my first book, but I still wanted to try and, and stretch a little and do something new. So I hope I succeeded in that. Yeah, I was going to say, it, it sounds like it's also terrifying for like a sophomore novelist trying to live up to those expectations in trying to do something new. What, what were your goals there? What were you trying to do differently in this book as a writer? One thing that I wanted to try to do was to write um, sort of on a, a little bit bigger of a canvas. So the first novel I kind of deliberately kept really about the family. Almost the whole novel takes place in the house. It's almost a sort of claustrophobic atmosphere. And that was sort of the amount of space that I felt like I could handle. And I wanted to, to branch out a little bit bigger this time um, to look, you know, not just at a family, but at a couple families at, at the town and to look at some of the larger issues that were there. Um, it it, that felt to me like something that the novel gave you space to do that a short story doesn't always. And, you know, it seemed like a fun experiment to try. Well, our reviewer, Eleanor Henderson, said that this novel is even more ambitious and accomplished than her debut. So it seems, at least in our pages, according to our <laughs> reviewer, that you succeeded in that. So, Celeste, thank you again for being here and congratulations on the book. Thank you so much, Pamela. The novel, again, is called Little Fires Everywhere by Celeste Eng.
Alexandra Alter is here to talk about what's going on in the literary world. Hi, Alexandra. Hi, Pamela. So you've got some numbers for us. Yes, it's a numbers-heavy segment this week. The Association of American Publishers released their monthly stats, and they are looking at, this time, the first five months of 2017, and we're seeing a continuation of some of the patterns that we've seen over the last couple of years. Ebooks slightly down, hardcover up, somewhat surprisingly. Interesting. Hardcover sales were up more than 6% in the first five months of this year. Ebooks were down a little more than 3%. Paperback was down, and digital audio continues to be like the biggest growth area for publishers. That was up more than 30% in wow. the first five months of this more year. More than 30%. I yes. think last year it was 26%, right? It's been around 30 It's been consistent, and, and it's it's pretty interesting to see the the slight slip in ebooks coincide with this boom in, in audio. And, of course, I think part of that is the trend of, of you know, people getting comfortable with just listening to stuff on their phones with podcasts and things like that. Our listeners and, would know nothing about that. <laughs> and um, the other interesting thing they break out when they do these surveys is they look at different categories. So adult fiction and nonfiction, that was pretty stable. It was up 1.6%. Children's and young adult was flat, 0% change there, and religious publishing was up more than 4%. So that's for the first five months of this year. We'll see, of course, the fall is the huge. That's when all the big fiction and nonfiction comes out. We're seeing major sales for some of the political books that are coming out. And another book that I wanted to talk about this week, because it's one that we've talked about before in the podcast, is Bill O'Reilly's new book and his killing series. Who dies? In this this book, it's Killing England. It's about the American Revolution. Who dies is a great question. So everyone's been sort of watching this book to see what would happen. You know, he was... uh, Fired from Fox following the scandal related to this, you know, his sexual harassment settlements that he had paid out. And everybody thought without his Fox platform, you know, this nonfiction series, which has been such a juggernaut, they have more than 17 million copies in print for the Killing series. Routinely, the new installments of the books sell more than a million copies just in the fall. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of this, I would say it's probably the most successful nonfiction franchise in the country. So everyone's curious without his platform on Fox, you know, he used to have about 4 million viewers every night and he heavily promoted the books. How would these books do? And so we have the first week sales coming in from NPD BookScan, and it did pretty well. I mean, I was actually surprised. The book Killing England sold 65,000 copies in its first week, and that's just print. Mm -hmm. You know, for any nonfiction author, that would be an astonishing figure. For Bill O'Reilly, it's not great, considering that last year, Killing the Rising Sun sold more than 250,000 copies in its first week. So 250,000 to 65,000. Right. Well, 250,000 does include audiobooks and ebooks, and the 65,000 does not. That's only print. Is that because those figures aren't available yet? That's because MPD BookScan only tracks print, and the 250,000 figure comes from Holt, his publisher. So publishers typically keep stock of all formats. Got it. So it could be, I mean, you know, you could imagine he has a lot of uh, fans who read audio books and ebooks, and perhaps they bought a bunch of copies, so it could be over 100,000 copies. It's still, you know, a significant drop, but also, you know, not as severe as one might imagine, given that he hasn't been out there on Fox. Right. He did appear on Hannity, on Sean Hannity's show this week, and I think that probably gave him a big boost. And the subject of the previous one was killing... That was about Japan. That was about Japan during World War II, and that's why it's called Killing the Rising Sun. I was going to, you know, I was wondering. I was like, maybe it's the subject matter, um, but <laughs> well, they're both true. countries. Yeah, um, <laughs> I mean, the American Revolution is sort of catnip for his fans, and uh, it's interesting to see people sticking with him. And, and you know, the his publisher said 
They're advertising it. They're doing what they normally do. They had mm-hmm. advertisements running on Fox. Barnes & Noble has it placed prominently. So uh, it seems like his publishing career, you know, endures. be interesting to look at other TV figures who lost their television platform and the kind of pre-book sales and post-book yes, sales. Yes, or even, even authors who lost other TV platforms like Oprah's show or yeah. things like that. I mean, that's certainly gives you a, a major audience boost. So All right. To be we'll investigated. Be Thanks, yeah. Alexandra. Thanks for having me. My colleagues Greg Coles, John Williams, and Jen Salai join us now to talk about what we're reading. Hi, guys. Hi, Pamela. Hi, Pamela. I'm going to start with Jen Salai with a preface to say that we've had, I think, five or possibly six Emmanuel Career-Free podcasts. Um, <laughs> but no which, longer. Yeah. Just like breaking the silence. Yes. Yeah. I I was I was a little bit concerned before I walked in here that everybody would be mad at me for bringing it back to career. But... <laughs> Here's an actual book that our colleague Barry Gouin has not yet read, mm-hmm. so I promised him that I would read it soon. It's called My Life as a Russian Novel. I mean, that title it's is fantastic. <laughs> I mean, his titles are pretty great, I think. And so this one, when I just first heard about it, I sort of assumed that it would be about his parents, more specifically his mother, who was born in France, but her parents, her father was from Georgia, and her mother was from sort of this fallen aristocrat Russian family. And I think that's where it's going. But of course, at the beginning, it starts out with a series of very strange dream sequences. And they're all a little bit nightmarish. And um, so then he has this very career-like passage, which I just wanted to read out, where he's talking about those dreams. And then he says, but I don't want that anymore. I can no longer bear to be locked into that bleak, unchanging scenario, can't bear to find myself no matter how I begin, always spinning a tale of madness, frozen immobility, imprisonment, fine-tuning the workings of the trap that will crush me. And then he goes on to talk about his book, The Adversary, which was about the man who killed his entire family. And so he wants to move away from that. So he says, now it's over. I'll do something else. I'll go toward the outside, toward others, toward life. And so you read that thinking, okay, well, what's this going to be? And then in the next paragraph, he describes how he decides that he wants to work on a documentary film because he thinks that that will bring him closer toward life and other people. And then, of course, the film he turns out (laughs) to work on is this film about a Hungarian POW during World War II who was captured by the Russians and kept in a psychiatric hospital for like 56 years. <laughs> but he's alive. But he's so alive. alive. So, yes. Yeah, so in 2000, <laughs> essentially this man, it was a news story at the time actually, where this Hungarian man who was kept in this very remote Russian prison, the Russians notified the Hungarian authorities and he was returned home, an old man who never learned how to speak Russian. And it's an incredibly sad story. So for the first maybe 50 pages or so of this book, it's about Carrere making this documentary about this guy. (laughs) But then it turns into something else. It turns into a story. It does start to turn into a story about his own grandfather from Georgia. And then it also turns into a story about his relationship with this woman, Sophie, whom he tells himself is the one 
is the woman he's going to stay with. She's the one he wants to be with. And then, of course... I, I think we know that that's not true. That's not true because... <laughs> From later career books. Right, exactly. Because I was thinking, I was thinking, oh, is Sophie the one in Lives Other Than My Own, which was written a couple years is after this one? Anna no, it's... Or it's um, Ellen. Uh, yeah, that's it, yes. Different woman. So, anyway, we'll see where it goes. You casually slipped Hungary in there again, too. I, 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 I will say that I didn't know that there was a Hungarian in this book. Yeah. So We'll choose to believe you. So, John, what are you reading? Uh, I also have an oldie but a goodie. It's not Carrere. It is Anita Bruckner, my favorite. I live in a house above some good friends of mine, and my downstairs neighbor this morning said, yeah, I've read two or three Bruckner novels, but I didn't realize how many she had written until you started replacing the floorboards of your apartment with them. (laughs) And so uh, I'm gaining a reputation. This this one is called Undue Influence. It was published in 1999, and it is very Brucknerian. It's about a young, lonely woman who works at a secondhand bookstore, befriends the older sisters who own the bookstore and also sort of emotionally imagines her way into the life of this guy and his invalid wife. It's just full of her psychological reflections um, about loneliness and dependency and and love, and it's great. Um, I'm about halfway through it. And then I'm just also reading Daniel Mendelssohn's new memoir, An Odyssey, which is about the time that he he taught a course about Homer's The Odyssey that his father, his 81-year-old father, attended. And they're very different people. Daniel Mendelssohn is a very well-known translator and literary critic and scholar. And his father is a sort of rough-and-ready Long Islander who is smart but not as you know intellectual as his son. And so it's about both. It's sort of like if Tuesdays with Maury went to grad school. But I'm going to consider it a failure if it doesn't get me to read. I, I have The Odyssey itself, and I'm kind of hoping that the book will be a, a motivation to read at least a significant amount of it, even though it's it's kind of imposing. You have that the in first, Robert Fagel's translation. It's a, beautiful, yeah. it's a beautiful book. It's a beautifully designed book. And I'm halfway through the introduction, which is quite long, which is fascinating just about, obviously, there are a lot of questions about the authorship of it and whether or not, it, you know, Homer ever wrote it down, whether it was passed down orally, and then a group of people wrote it down. And that alone is really interesting. The first translation of the Odyssey by a woman is coming out later this fall. It is Emily Wilson. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, I I think uh, what's maybe less pertinent than the fact that she's a woman is that she matches Homer's line count exactly. And so uh, it's interesting in terms of rhythm and kind of the formal challenges of translation that she's really matching Homer line for line, um, which... Fagels certainly does not do. So, yeah, I'll be interested to see what Greg, people think about you that. You have something really fun in front of you. I, I really do. You know, speaking of Anita Bruckner, I, I'm also reading a very prolific British novelist. Um, I've got P.G. Wodehouse's Leave It to Smith. I've read all of Wodehouse's Worcester and Jeeves novels, but I had not read his Smith novels, which is a, a much shorter series that he wrote. Leave It to Smith is the the final one of those series. And it's Typical Wodehouse in terms of, you know, it's a heist caper. It's got a very convoluted and hilarious plot about a stolen necklace. It calls to mind, I guess, um, some of the Pink Panther stories in, in that way. It's brilliant so long as you don't examine it too closely. But with Wodehouse, of course, the comedy is everything. It's um, absurdist and satirical and farcical. It basically invents a very British kind of humor that Monty Python later took up. It's all about puncturing class differences, which uh, in the Britain of those novels underlies everything the same way that racial differences do in American society. So in America, you have the the comedies that are scathing about race, like The Sellout or going all the way back to Huck Finn. But for Wodehouse, it's all about the aristocracy. 
And one thing I, I want to note, just because I think his humor tends to overshadow it, is that he really is an incredible writer just at the level of the sentence. He's a great prose stylist. And uh, we'll read a sentence just from the second page of the novel, which could almost be something out of Jane Austen. Away in the blue distance, wooded hills ran down to where the severn gleamed like an unsheathed sword, while up from the river, rolling parkland, mounting and dipping, surged in a green wave almost to the castle walls, breaking on the terraces in a many-colored flurry of flowers as it reached the spot where the province of Angus McAllister, his lordship's head gardener, began. Pamela, what are you reading? Reading is probably too strong a word for what I'm doing. Um, I'm sort of trying to read Le Carre's novel, A Perfect Spy. And I mentioned last week that I was having a little bit of trouble getting into it, mostly because of distractions. But now because it's, you know, people say that this is his best novel. And he said that it's his favorite novel of the ones that he's written, the one he considers to be his best. But it's really, at least for quite a while, a coming-of-age story and a semi-autobiographical one. And I really wanted cloak and daggers, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I was in the mood for something completely gripping. And, you know, I wanted to be wrapped up in a plot, literally. And there's this great thing that Jennifer Egan says this week in By the Book, which I think more succinctly and vividly says something I've said in other ways here before. We ask her, what influences your decisions about which books to read? Word of mouth reviews a trusted friend. And she says, all of the above, but in the moment of choosing, I tend to go with whatever I'm craving most. Reading is a lot like eating for me. If I try to read a book I'm not hungry for, I won't enjoy it. But if I wait until I have a real appetite for something, I'll devour it. So I think I'm not hungry for a coming of age right now, and everyone else's choices here are looking, you know, like the the more appetizing um, entree. So I might switch by the time we get to next week if I don't make more progress now. For the meantime, we've gone from Carrere to Le Carre. Very neatly. Thanks so much, guys. <laughs> Thanks, Thank Pamela. You. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Inside the New York Times Book Review is produced by Pedro Rosado from Headstepper Media. Thanks for listening. For the New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul. Pamela Paul.